0: If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I am going to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and Chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke and Chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 31 through 44, so 31 through the end of the chapter. Together this morning, um, we started Chapter 4 about two weeks ago, and we're going to cap it off um, today. Luke four in th- thirty one through forty four. It also behind my other screen in my translation, for you to follow along there as well. So if you got it, say I got it. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and read this together. God's word says, and he Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For the with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had... Any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Amen. This is God's word and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. You don't like authority, do you? Am I right in saying that? (coughs) The math, I'm bad at math, but I know this math. The math of our age is authority equals bad autonomy equals good. You think that's fair to say? Nobody wants to admit it. You know it's true. Okay, It's deeply written on the American conscience, isn't it? After all, the founding of our nation was based largely on rejecting the authority of the tyrant King George. Wasn't it? A flag we waved that is now has a coiled snake on it, and at the bottom, what does it say? Don't tread on me. When an external force outside of ourselves wants to impose something that we feel is stifling to our freedom, our first impulse is to invoke our rights. And those rights directly relate to our personal autonomy. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way in the 19th century, The country is full of rebellion. The country is full of kings. Hands off. Let there be no control and no interference in the administration of this kingdom of me. But rejection of external authority is an American problem. It's a human problem. Back in Eden, (laughs) a serpent slithered up to our first parents and said, Did God really say? Before casting doubt on God's goodness, isn't he withholding from you? He asked, Don't you deserve to cast off the authority of God so that you can be just like him after all? That's where true freedom is found. And since then, humans have had a predisposition to cast off authority or at best... I with suspicion. And this human propensity is captured well in the last line of William Ernest Helmsley's poem Invictus when it says, I am the master of my fate. You know the rest. I am the captain of my soul. But really it makes sense to reject authority, doesn't it? Who can we trust? To the forces of evil, he's a terror. To those in need, he's a champion. That being the case, we have in Jesus' authority worthy of our full and unabashed allegiance and submission.
1: We don't need to be afraid of his
0: authority. We, we don't need to eye it with suspicion because he's able to possess incredible power and exercise it perfectly and compassionately. And so what we'll find in his mighty arms is freedom. Whereas in autonomy, you will ironically only find chains. So in our time together, I want us to consider three points because I'm a good Baptist, all right? And I'll tell you what they are straight away, all right? I'll give them to you straight away, all right? The authority of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the invitation of Jesus. The authority of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the invitation of Jesus. So let's first consider the authority of Jesus, This, I think, is fair to say is the emphasis of the entire scene. Here we have, from 31 to 44, three miracle stories, and each one points to Jesus' authority. He has authority over the spiritual forces, even the evil ones. He has authority over illness and disease, where he can simply rebuke sickness and it would flee. His authority is total and unlimited. Now, the scene opens with Luke telling us that Jesus went down from Nazareth to Capernaum, which was... In Galilee, all right? And we're going to hang out in Galilee until Luke 9, okay? That's where everything from here to Luke 9 takes place. And he literally did go down from Nazareth. So when you're reading the gospel, here's just a little cheese for you, okay? When the gospels say that Jesus went up or down someplace, it's speaking more of changing elevations than going from north to south. So Jesus goes from Nazareth, which is 1,300 feet above sea level, down to Capernaum, which is 695 feet below sea level. So he did go down from Nazareth. And where is he? He is teaching in the synagogue, and the people are amazed at his teaching, even before he performs a single exorcism or a miracle. Now we see in verse 32 that the people are astonished at his teaching. And why? Because his words possessed what? Authority. What is significant is from where his authority comes, okay? These people in Capernaum were probably used to hearing various rabbis, and rabbis tended to teach uh, speaking never from their own authority, okay? They would always quote other rabbis and scholars and, and would appeal to their teachers. They would say, Rab- like, like Rabbi so-and-so said, or there's a saying that goes like this. But they didn't teach from authority that they possessed within themselves. They appealed to others who came before them. And those people did the same thing. And on and on and we go. Even if you think of Old Testament prophets, what do they preface their words with? Thus says, the Lord. They weren't prophesied from their own authority and they knew it. They knew they were merely the mouthpiece of God, not the creators of the contest they delivered. But then you have Jesus. Watch this in the synagogue. And he teaches, but he makes no appeal to anyone outside of himself. When Jesus teaches, he says, I say to you, you have heard it was said, but I say." because he possesses all authority that is possible to possess. And he's the originator of truth itself. William Lane put it like this. I recognize that cry. Jesus' words presented with sovereign authority which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection, confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. There's no debating with Jesus. There's just astonishment at his words. His words, they're authoritative. There's no haggling over terms with him. You accept what he said or you do not. But you certainly cannot alter them or rob them of their power or demands on your life. He speaks from authority because he possesses all that there is to possess. That's why people were astonished. They never heard anyone speak like this before. And Jesus was rejected in Nazareth because he spoke with authority, but the contents of his words the people did not like. That didn't make them untrue, did it? For they proved the truthfulness of his words with their rejecting actions. And people still do that today, don't they? Reject Jesus' words? People reject Jesus' teaching today, just as they did in Nazareth, because they're confronting and convicting and challenging to our ways of life. And I wonder, what do you do with Jesus' teaching? The people in Capernaum were astonished and in awe of Jesus' teaching and and knew this man had authority. We must listen. Is that what Jesus' teaching does for you? The people of Nazareth rejected violently, re- reacted violently against Jesus' teaching and dismissed them out of hand because there were serious implications for what he said. Is that how you react? You know, we find in these two cities that we have only two options on how to re- react to Jesus' teachings and authority. But you can reject and resist them or receive them. Those are the only two options available, which characterizes you. Because you make no mistake, the reactions here and in a Nazareth endure in our time. Some violently oppose Jesus' authority. Some simply ignore them outright. Some embrace them. But it means surrendering their own authority in favor of Christ, which one describes you. You. You know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people claim to know Christ. They claim to know God, but they don't attend to the king's teachings. They ignore them. If they claim allegiance to him. Do you think that's possible? Are we given that option? You know, George Whitfield. he said it like this. If an earthly king were to issue a royal proclamation and the life or death of his subjects entirely depended on performing or not performing its conditions, how eager would they be to hear what those conditions were? And shall we not pay the same respect to the King of kings and Lord of lords and lend an attentive ear to his ministers when they are declaring in his name how our pardon, peace, and happiness may be secure? If Jesus is God's king... If he possesses all authority that could possibly be possessed in the universe, and he spoke and his words were written down for us and passed down to us, and we claim love and devotion to him, should we not take what he said seriously and attend to them constantly? Not only read and learn them, but obey them? You know, in his book, Unsaved Christian, Dean and Sarah relays an illustration where he heard when he was a kid, stuck with him, and he he said the speaker had the audience literally measure the distance between their heads and their hearts, the left side of their head to the middle of the left side of their chest. For most people, it's about 18 inches, and as he wrapped up, the speaker said this, some of you are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. His point is that simple, mere, mental ascent to the gospel isn't enough to save. It has to take root in your heart. And once it takes root in your heart, you'll be transformed with renewed affections that sees a need for Christ. And is conformed by Christ. And one of the principal ways that this happens is through his word. And this leads to functional obedience and life change. The Sarah says, again, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. In his own words, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Many people want the good love charm Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. That hurts, doesn't it? If Jesus had this kind of authority, and we give him our allegiance, shouldn't we attend to the commands of the king? Like that, that's mere logic, isn't it? Is that not what good subjects do? It's not that obedience will save us, but this striving towards obedience is evidence that Jesus did save us. It's, it's fruit of our confession. Because look, the next thing we see is someone recognizing Jesus, knowing he's the Holy One of God, and yet is not thus saved. So not only what we see. The demon in this synagogue had the best theology in Capernaum that day, apart from Jesus. But that didn't save him, did it? As James said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And that's clearly seen here. Don't you see that mere acknowledgement of God is not enough? Even saying one believes that Jesus is the Christ is not enough to save. The demons believe that, yet they are eternally lost. Your neighbors and your friends and your family members, they may all say they believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he alone saves, may be good citizens, have good church attendance and service records, and even good theology and still not know Jesus. Mental ascent must travel down to the heart, which flows out to functional allegiance to Jesus. Luke tells us that there's a man in the synagogue, he's possessed by this demon, and without prompting, he cries out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And here is another confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the demon knows exactly who Jesus is, doesn't he? He knows Jesus is the Holy One of God, and this evokes fear from him. You see, look look again at your Bible. You see how it says, if you're in the ESV, it says, ha, H-A, right? In verse 34. This is an emotive response. And there's not a good English word to translate this. It means something like an emotional reaction of displeasure and surprise, but also fear. Jesus' mere presence causes the spirit to feel opposed and threatened. And he fears Jesus' power. The demon is desperate. He asks Jesus, have you come to destroy us? This is, says Bach, a challenge to Jesus saying in effect, in order to get to me, you also have to destroy the man I'm possessing. The demon orders him, can Jesus exercise him and keep the man he is possessing from harm? And you know what Jesus does? He does just that. He silences the demon. He rebukes the demon. He commands him to leave the man who is unharmed in the process and Jesus delivers him easily and quickly. And the people were amazed. Why were they amazed? You know, exorcisms was, were common in this time. But but it, it, they were very involved and not very effective. You know, sometimes the exorcists would like put a ring under the nose of the person, recite this long, involved spell, splash water on their hands, or use root from a specific plant and, and other incantations and trickets. And it took a lot. And it could very be complicated process. But then you have Jesus. What's he doing? He's commanding them to leave. And they fled. That's authority. That's power. Unlike anything these people had ever seen. You know, in Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, there's a line that goes like this. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And this is what happens here. One little word from Jesus, and the demons not only obey, they flee. That the evil forces obey Jesus, they're subordinate to him. Nothing is a match for this king. And this is the first miracle that Jesus does in Luke, isn't it? That's on purpose because Luke is communicating to us that Jesus brings a kingdom that opposes and defeats evil, He's the champion. For those who are bound and oppressed by evil, as he said he would be in Nazareth. See, we might picture Jesus and the devil as being like these equal and opposite forces, right? Like in a battle for cosmic battle for supremacy. I've even seen it depicted, and I hope you haven't shared this on your wall, and I haven't seen it if you have, right? But online art where Jesus and Satan are like sitting across a table, and they're in an arm wrestling match. This couldn't be further from the truth. This scene in Luke 4 evidences that Jesus and Satan are not equals by any stretch of the imagination and Jesus struggles against no one. Jesus tells the demon to be quiet and get lost. And what does he do? He shuts up and he leaves. I mean, even the very sight of Jesus, the demon starts sweating bullets. By like His mere presence, and they tremble and ask, Have you come to destroy us? Because it knows that Jesus can destroy it, and Jesus terrifies them. And think about this: the demon possessed man, uh, demon possessed a man, and spoke up here in the synagogue. And what were the results? The result was through the demon possessed man, Jesus' power was shown. Right, and the people marvelled at the greatness of Christ, not the power of the demon. So so what Satan tried to do to hinder Jesus, do you see? Actually served God's purposes. Causing people to marvel at Jesus and his power. Jesus has no equal. Jesus is the power and authority in the universe. And Satan is not even in the universe of being on Jesus' level. Do you guys know that? Jesus versus the devil and his band of jabronis is like the 1992 U.S. Dream Team playing a pickup basketball game against the Shapoigan, Wisconsin School for the Arts. All right? It's like the American military went to war against the Boy Scout troop. All right? It's like if today's in the Super Bowl, the Rams were playing the Pee Wee football team in the Little Giants movie that Rick Moranis was in. You remember that one? You guys getting the picture here? Not, my, not all my analogies are good, all right? But you get it, right? What's going to happen at the end of the age? Jesus is going to crush Satan's head with his boot like a gardener who sees a serpent trespassing and steps on his head, placing it at the tall grass. You need to know this. Because the world seems evil. Yes? And it seems dark. And it seems hopeless. And what comes across our TVs and our feeds is bad news. It even seems like bad news and darkness is rewarded. It's like, like the darker, the better. The bleaker, the better. The more divisive, the better. This is what sells and gets clicked in 2022. But hear me, friends, and take heart. Things are not what they seem. Who does this world belong to, truly? Who is in control, really? You know, in the Civil War, when the Union Army pushed the Confederates back over the Potomac, One of Lincoln's generals wrote that the army had finally pushed the enemy out of our territory and into his own. And this irritated Lincoln. He said to one of his advisors, Will, our generals never get that idea out of their heads. The whole country is our soil. Jesus is the authority in the universe. And he has won. And he is winning. And he will win. Jesus is the light that has broken into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you've given him your allegiance, there's nothing to fear. Look how powerful he is. He is sovereign. He is good. And even when things things seem bleak, we're assured that all things will work for his glory and our good. And in the end, every sad thing will come untrue and Satan will be fully and finally cast out. Is Satan and his band of flunkies prowling like a lion to see whom they can devour? Yes. Are they powerful? Yes. But Jesus is more powerful still. And the devil is on a very short leash. And on the other end of that leash, it's secure in the hand of this Jesus, who you can know and serve and be joined to. Klein Snodgrass, who has an awesome name, said this. The New Testament focuses on the devil and demon for only two purposes, to say evil and death are defeated and to warn us to not be beguiled by evil. Everyone knows about evil and death. Christians are people who believe Christ has already conquered both. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, I mentioned him last week. He had a great illustration of this. He said he once saw a small child and they were playing with a balloon. And when the balloon had no air in it, it was empty, Uh, it was a small thing, right? You know, it just fit in the the palm of of the child's hand. But when the the child blew the balloon up, he said it was a frightening thing. It had a devilish face on the side of the balloon. He said the child kept blowing and blowing until the face was very large. And suddenly the balloon exploded. And all the child held in his hands was a handful of rubber with this distorted face reduced to almost nothing. And the child attempted to stretch out its face, but it lost its power to frighten. And Barnhouse says, as I reflected on this, he thought about what happened to Satan when Christ died and rose. He said, the devil and his band of fiends had been defeated and disarmed by Christ who made a public example out of them. We can thank God, said Barnhouse, that Satan was effectively put to open shame, exposed publicly. His overblown balloon burst, leaving him nothing but the messy remains of his grinning pretensions. This is what Jesus did. With his unmatched authority, he has defeated the devil. Do you believe this, friend? And this is good news for you. Not only in the future, but right now. It means that if you're in Christ, that whatever you're facing or will face, Jesus is overcome. It means he will be with you through the trials and struggles. It means that whatever you're going through is for a purpose to mold you and shape you. There's great comfort in that, isn't there? What are you facing, beloved of God? Be of good cheer. Whatever it is, and no matter how great it might seem, Jesus is greater still. Because this is perhaps the most amazing thing about this section. Not only is Jesus shown to be maximally powerful and a possessor of all authority, not only is he shown to cause demons to tremble at the mere sight of him, but he's shown to be incredibly passionate and compassionate. And compassionate. This is what we see at our next point. Point number two: the compassion of Jesus. In the next scene, Luke takes us from the public synagogue to the home of future disciple Peter, whose mother-in-law is very sick. Now, this isn't like a cold. All right, this is a life-threatening illness. If something does not happen, she is likely to die. But isn't it amazing that Jesus, who, who just made quick work publicly of the demonic, is willing to enter into the private home of a fisherman? Outside of the public eye, it's just it's just them in there, and they ask, Is there something you can do to help? And filled with compassion, the all-authoritative Jesus stands over the poor sick woman and rebukes her illness, and just like that. And now it says, just like that. <laughs> she pops up and begins to serve them. <laughs> like there's no recovery time here. Jesus rebukes the sickness, it flees, she's up and serving like she was never sick at all. That's power. Now, here and in four. And 40 and 41, we're shown that not only does Jesus have authority over the demonic, but he has authority over even sickness and every disease. Then later in the gospel, we'll see he has power over the elements and creation itself. There's anything he doesn't have power over. Further, we're told that Jesus heals all manner of people, right? Individuals and crowds and women and men in public and private. All kinds of people who simply have one thing in common. You know what that is? They're in need. That's what they all have in common. I mean, really, what do any of these people have to commend themselves to Jesus? Peter's mother-in-law did what exactly to convince Jesus to heal her? She was on the brink of death. There's nothing she could do. right? She's lying in bed, likely unconscious, unable to speak, and yet what does Jesus do? He heals her. The crowds, what do they have to commend themselves to Jesus? Nothing at all. But the people come to him, come to him. He sees them. He really sees them. And they ask for help, and Jesus heals them. Isn't that striking? Like, these people can do nothing for Jesus. They can't benefit him. He's the creator God. He lacks nothing. They have no righteousness. They have nothing that can earn the love and compassion of Jesus, and yet he sees them, and he heals them. You know, something that is... Really remarkable that I think we might tend to overlook. Look again at the end of verse 40. You see what this says? He laid hands, laid hands on every one of them and healed them. I just want you to ponder that for a moment. Because again, how much power does Jesus have? How much authority does Jesus have? All of it. We see in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't even need to be in the same room as someone to heal them. Right? We, we see in the case of the man with the demon in 33-35 and with Peter's mother-in-law that Jesus can merely speak and heal Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone. That's how powerful he is. He can heal from a distance with a word, but he does touch them. That's how loving he is. Doesn't that astonish you? Look, this Jesus is simultaneously powerful and compassionate. If he were merely compassionate and not powerful, that would not be good news for us because he couldn't help us. And if, we were, if he were sovereign and powerful yet felt no compassion for us, this wouldn't be good news either for He while he directed history, he would be doing so in such a detached way without considering us. But our triune God, we have both power and love. Both authority and compassion. And this is embodied in a person. It wasn't enough for Jesus to heal. He desired, he wanted to touch each And every one of them, he wanted them to feel his compassion and care. He he could have waved his hand and healed the whole town all at once, right? Just like that, every illness would be cured, every demon would have fled, but he didn't do that, did he? He went one by one, image bearer by image bearer, and he personally looked them in the eye, and he touched them, and he healed them. The people saw Jesus as powerful, approachable, and kind. They didn't need to hide. They felt safe when they approached him. And you must know that this same Jesus can be approached by you too. And he can be asked to help. And his heart will be moved towards you. And and you can find safety in his gaze because just as clearly as he saw the people in Capernaum as he touched and healed them, he sees you too. You can never move beyond his gaze. It's not possible. Further, when you hurt, whether physically or emotionally, he feels for you too. And he can sympathize. And he wants you to come. Parents, think of when your kids were small. Like, think of when they were just learning to walk. And they would fall, and they'd get a bump or a painful scrape or bruise, and they would cry, and you knew that cry. And something, you remember, something in your stomach would churn with compassion. And they'd struggle to stand, and their eyes would dart to and fro and would look for you. And when their eyes located you, they would rush as quickly as their chubby new legs could take them with arms raised in anticipation of you scooping them up, bringing them close and telling them it will be all right. And as you, if you as an imperfect parent can love like that, how do you think the very embodiment of love Jesus Christ feels for sinners who know their need and go to him? It blows away any earthly parent love. His compassion, we're told from Scripture, is from the guts. It's from the very center of his being, and he has that for you. And he wants you to come to him with your your legs that are still learning to walk in his ways. Do you know this? What do you What are you going through right now, I wonder? What are you struggling with? (laughs) What's keeping you bound and in chains? What, What sin seemingly won't let you go? What is making you fearful or anxious? What's making you feel ashamed? What is it? That makes you feel like there's no hope or end in sight. Take it to Jesus. I want you, everybody look look at me, okay? If you feel like you somehow will be a burden to him, or your problem is too small or too big, or you feel too sinful or dirty to go to him, I want you to hear me as clearly as you can. And I say this with love. Those are lies from the pits of hell. Jesus is not repulsed by you. He is never bothered by you. He is not, you are are not a burden to him. He's not too busy for you. In fact, he delights in your coming to him. That brings him joy. Your coming and brings him joy. His desire is for you to lean wholly on him and for him to be your champion, don't you see? He wants you to see that you are weak and needy, but he is strong and has no lack. He is both powerful and kind, and you can never exhaust, even if you had a thousand lifetimes, you could never exhaust his grace and love towards you. Never. In his book, Gentle and Lowly*, Dane Orland, he says a lot of incredible things if you've read it. If you didn't get a copy of this book, visit the bookstall and just take it. He says this, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. It's been another way around. We hold back, lurking in shadows, fearful and failing. We miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joys rise and fall with ours. And he says this I love this Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. Isn't that something? Isn't that wonderful? He's so compassionate that he cares deeply for you and so powerful that he could actually do something about it. And what more proof do we need than the incarnation and cross that he loves us more than we could ever imagine? Will you thus come to him? And will you thus serve him? And will you thus allow an encounter with him, this incredible Savior and King, alter the way that you live? He invites you to come at all times to him, and live in him, and for him, and will you go to him? This brings us to our third and final point, point number three, the invitation of Jesus. Jesus is clearly someone who could be approached, yes. And he delights in sinners coming to him, and he invites us to do so. But this must be on his terms, and our going to him ought to utterly upend our lives. How can an encounter with this powerful and compassionate king evoke any other response from us do you see what happened in verses 42 through 44 Jesus departs to a desolate place likely desiring to pray but the people sought after him but this is different than before okay it isn't that they want healing that's not what they want here it's that they wanted to keep him in Capernaum okay To this, Jesus says, I can't stay because he is under a divine must, a divine imperative to spread the good news of the kingdom to other places also. So on one hand, can you really blame the people of Capernaum for wanting Jesus to stay? No. But On the other hand, Jesus is on a mission, and it can't be changed by anyone. Jesus refuses to be boxed in by the people. He refuses to be only what they want him to be. Who he is is who he is. And he has things to accomplish that are bigger than any one town. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says on this verse, we, not just Capernaumites, can make the same mistake with Jesus. We try to finagle him, to meet our expectations, to fall in with our programs, to meet our designs of what Jesus ought to be or do. And again and again, he may have to remind us that we do not write his script. Let us remember that while Jesus invites us to come to him and promises safety and comfort in his arms, that he is still not tameable by us. Ours is not to invite Jesus into what we're doing. It's to join in on what he is doing in the world. We don't invite him and then mold him to fit our program and ideas. We're invited by him and we're to be molded and shaped to fit his program. Do you see Remember, he's the divine one. We are not, right? We are dependent on him, not vice versa. Remember, he said, I am that I am, not I am whatever you want me to be. It's like, have you been to one of those Build-A-Bear workshops? You guys know what I'm talking about when malls were still a thing? Essentially... Children, and let's be honest, adults did this too, can go in, customize stuffed animal, right, to their liking, right? You would you would go in, you'd find a carcass that you like, you'd pick the voice that you like, have it stuffed, and you can select outfits and accessories. You pick and choose the parts you wanted, right? And ignore, pass over the parts that you do not want. Human impulse is to try to do this with God. Voltaire said, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. But Jesus doesn't allow for such things. But we are not to be autonomous creatures who add Jesus into our lives when we want him and ignore him when we don't. Nor can we pick and choose the characteristics we like about Jesus and reject those that we don't. Nor can we pick which words of his to take seriously and reject or flat-eye ignore those we find distasteful or inconvenient. So consider, for example, what we talked about today. Concerning Jesus, if we take Jesus and we emphasize his authority and power and minimize or ignore his compassion, then we have an incomplete picture of Jesus. But if we emphasize his compassion and ignore his authority and reject his commands or pick and choose what to obey, we again have another incomplete and truncated view of the Lord. Jesus will not be remade nor fit in any boxes of our makings. He comes on his terms in his whole person. And we embrace him as he says he is. Or we reject him. There's no in between. Because remember, Jesus is the authority. He is power embodied. He is too mighty to be tamable. And so ours isn't to invite him into our lives. It's to offer our lives to him and follow his command and take him at his word. In which case, he will push back against us. Don't you think that's fair to say? He will say things. You ever ever be reading the Gospels and be like, I wish he didn't say this. I wish he didn't say this. He'll say things like that. And, And we will want to insist on our own way, but we must resist because he is the king, and we are not. He knows what's best, and we do not. He calls for our whole lives, and ours is not to haggle terms, but to bend knee to him and say, command me, my Lord. And shouldn't he push up against us? Shouldn't what he said challenge us and make us uncomfortable? If sin has tarnished us and led us to all the wrong paths and caused havoc and destruction and caused to pursue good things in unholy ways, shouldn't Jesus, who means to remake us, contradict us? Carl Barr said, if God doesn't make us mad, we're not worshiping him. But ourselves. As J.D. Greer, if our God never contradicts us and always and always like what we like and hates what we like hate, he's not the real God. All we've done is deified our preferences and called the personification of those things God. So Jesus won't let the people of Capernaum hold them back or keep them to himself. To themselves. He must go and preach what? What does it say? What does it say that he must preach? The good news of the what? Kingdom of God. Now, if you write your Bibles or your journals, I encourage you to make a note of this phrase, Kingdom of God. Underline it, highlight it, starlet it. Do it every time you encounter it in this gospel, okay? This is an important phrase for Luke. In fact, it's so important that this gospel alone, kingdom of God and its related terms are mentioned nearly 40 times. It's mentioned here in Luke 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, and 23. You think it's important? (laughs) That's an important phrase. Over and over again. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and preaches the message of the kingdom. Jesus brings with him the kingdom of God in his incarnation, and he will bring it in fullness at the end of the age. And so this reality of the kingdom of God is past, present, and future. And Jesus is inviting you into his kingdom. He's calling you to embrace his rule, to give yourself utterly to him. And to spread this good news of the kingdom to your town and even to the ends of the earth. His divine imperative to preach the kingdom becomes your divine imperative to preach the kingdom. Leonard Sweet said this, By healing the sick and casting out demons, Jesus was effectively saying, This is what happens when God is running the world. This is what it looks like when God is king of the earth. The time has come. The dominion of God is breaking into the present. This is what happens when God becomes king on earth as he is in heaven. And contrary to popular opinion, God's rule will benefit the most unworthy. To put it in a sentence, Jesus is God's future in a person. This is what his healing announced. To encounter Jesus as to encounter God's rule in human form. Have you, friend, encountered this glorious, powerful, authoritative, compassionate, box-breaking Jesus then what's left to do is bend your knee to him and begin a lifelong journey of being remade by him and join him on what he's doing in the world. And as he remakes you, he plans to remake the whole world and he wants you to be part of it. This isn't because he needs you or me, but because he loves you. What what greater mission could you give yourself over to than this? Because here's the thing, we've talked about this repeatedly over the last several weeks. You're going to make a decision. You know this? Today, you will make a decision on which kingdom to follow. And there's only two choices. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God. And you will make that choice today, and you'll make it tomorrow, and you'll make it next week, and you'll make it every day for the rest of your life. And how you live will be evidence of what you've chosen. And where you run to when life is hard and when you've blown it will be evidence of what you've chosen. So what will it be? You know, and here's the other thing. Your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and family members have to make this choice too. And a lot of them are making the wrong choice. And a lot of them are serving the kingdom of darkness. And a lot of them are still enslaved by their sin. And a lot of them, if they saw Jesus approaching, would hide in shame and fear. And Jesus is calling you to tell them about the kingdom and about the good news and about the incredible beauty and power and compassion of Christ that you've encountered. Will you tell them? Jesus is inviting you in this moment and at all times to see his authority and to submit to him, call on his name, and live in obedience to his word. He is inviting you to see his power, to know that he holds all things in his hand, the same hand that was pierced for sinners like you and like me, to see that his power is matchless. Which means there's nothing you are bound by or struggle with that he can't overcome or relate to or be your strength in the midst of. He's inviting you in the midst of your pain and sorrow to go to him and find safety in his compassionate arms. He's inviting you to take him on his terms for who he is because he is greater than you could possibly imagine. And he is inviting you to be part of what he's doing in the world and be an emissary for a better kingdom in the midst of a hostile world. Would you come to him again or for the first time? This is what I want you to leave with today. Jesus is glorious. It's very simple. Jesus is glorious and powerful and beautiful and compassionate. He is everything. He must be everything to you. Only he can satisfy. Satisfy. He is hell's terror, but he could be your champion. Now allow me to close with one of my favorite quotes from someone who has quickly become one of my favorite characters from the last few hundred years of Christianity. His name was Robert Murray Machane. He's a Scottish pastor. He died at the age of 30, but he left an incredible mark during his short time on the earth. I want you to listen to this quote, and then we'll pray together. This quote comes from a letter he wrote to his friend. He said, learn... Much of the Lord Jesus, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in it. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh.